is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. I'm Laurie Martin Gregory, and as always, back here with the esteemed Andrew Wakefield. Andy, so great to be back with you. Great to be back as well. Thank you. We have a very special guest this week who is having her moment in the spotlight, although I'm certain that if she had her druthers, it would be for other reasons. But she's definitely uh, someone who we need to acknowledge for her courage and bravery at what she has seen and what she's speaking out about. And that's Erin Oshevsky, who is, I guess, Erin, first of all, welcome. Thank Thank you for for taking time for us. You're being dubbed as the COVID nurse whistleblower, my friend. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So my goodness, where do we even start? I'm just, I'm thrilled that you could make time for us. I know it's crazy hectic. Andy's been crazy hectic finishing the film. And I know that you had a chance to take a glimpse at the first 15 minutes. So maybe we can start there and then we'll work our way backwards. Yeah, no, definitely. I did take a look at it actually right not long before this um, call and I wasn't two minutes in and I was already in tears. <laughs> so <laughs> honestly, I, it is. That was I the mean, happy bit. Yeah, <laughs> the happy part. <laughs> oh gosh, you know, I mean, it is. I've lived, you know, through a vaccine injury with my child, and it's it is so heartbreaking to just, you know, just seeing like the pregnancy tests. You know, like you start off and you're so excited, you know, and you know you have all these questions and you're nervous and you're scared, and you have all these doctors telling you this is what you have to do and a lot of these parents don't know any different and you know even just questioning the vaccines you're automatically you know put into a the a category of being a conspiracy theorist so to have like something like this that's so real that so many parents you know have experienced across the world is this is going to change history in my opinion I'm so glad you got a chance to watch it. Erin, you and I first met in on the steps of, uh, I guess, the state legislature in Tallahassee. Uh, yeah. At the protest there, and I disappeared off into this film, and uh, you carried, I guess you went back to your family and working, and then decided to get, throw yourself into what's been described as the epicenter of COVID in New York. Yeah. And that's where this story really takes us. I, I watched... Dell's show several times. Dell did a great job as ever. Yes, it, it's it's an extraordinary story. Um, and and as a filmmaker, I, now I'm always looking for story. How would you tell this? Where? How would you go about communicating the importance of this story, the significance of it to a wider audience? And let's just take it piece by piece, and you can you can give me your insights for having worked there in the front line, but. Initially, what we have, what appears to be a financially destitute hospital that relies largely on Medicare, Medicaid patients, cashing in on a worldwide crisis. And I, I know from many other reports that the hospitals for classifying patients as COVID positive, they get a bump up in their 
ICUs, the return, if they ventilate patients, they, that number goes up still further. And so that there is a financial incentive to classify patients as being COVID positive when they're negative. And you showed one of your patients where repeated testing, antibody testing, I presume, but possibly DNA testing or uh, RNA testing, led to a diagnosis of non-COVID positive. In other words, that patient was negative, and, and yet they were labeled as being uh, a positive. They were labeled as being coronavirus or COVID positive. And that, on the face of it, is a misclassification. Just a clinical question, was there anything about that patient, clinical condition, that would allow someone to override to say that this patient was positive when the testing was repeatedly negative? No, no. Nothing in your, in your clinical experience that entitled them to do that? No, it's, it's absolutely not. I mean, it was, it's unheard of. You can't diagnose somebody with, you know, anything if you don't have, you know, especially something that's being lab tested, diagnosing them as a, you know, in this case, COVID positive, when the test results, multiple test results at that clearly said that they were negative. Right. That, that, that was my feeling. And I just, it's important to clarify because I can imagine a situation where there are clinical criteria for someone being positive that override a, a potential false negative test result but clearly that wasn't the case and you were his you were his attending nurse so on the other area of misclassification which was very very distressing and clearly distressing to you was this order not to resuscitate and this was in the case of a 37 year old guy who'd walked in to the hospital and was covid negative to begin with became positive and then this order for do not resuscitate was made. Just, just talk to me about the background to that and how that came about. So they had the whole hospital COVID and it became kind of, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, where everybody in this hospital, all the medical professionals are like liability free. So it just became the norm that everybody that comes in must be COVID positive. And everybody must be treated the same. And there's a, there's, you know, we know that there is no one size fits all in medicine. Um, with this, they were treating everybody as a one size fits all. So, you know, he came in with difficulty breathing or, you know, respiratory distress, but a lot of people have that, especially right now. And I mentioned in my video that, you know, a lot of this is anxiety. You know, I'm not saying that some people didn't have it, but when you're anxious, people are watching the news and you think, you know, you think, oh my gosh, I have these symptoms that this could be me. They're nervous and they come in with these feelings. I saw that a lot while I was in <clears throat> working in Florida, you know, prior to going over to New York, a lot of these people were coming in like kind of hyperventilating. They're super scared. They think they have this COVID and, you know, here we would not treat them as COVID and there they would admit them as COVID rule out. So that's kind of what happened with this, this man, this 37 year old. Um, they said, yep, you may have it. We're going to admit you. And then once you are admitted, it's pretty much just an assembly line to a body bag, essentially. 
A terrifying thought, isn't it? Absolutely terrifying. So we've got these two areas of misclassification. I, I have never, in my clinical experience, had a 37-year-old who was do not resuscitate. And that's that bizarre in itself. And they said, you confronted a doctor or someone confronted a doctor in that. Mm-hmm. And he said that this was policy. Did you ever see that policy? Um, no, it didn't change so much. So the policy would change as we go on. It was just everything was under the guise of a pandemic. You know, but at that time, we were fine. We had well enough, you know, we had more than enough nurses. Uh, There's tons of travel nurses there. The staff nurses themselves were sleeping. You know, I mean, it was just, there was just no accountability. And he was a full code. It's clearly charted in, hey, like if, when we pull his records, because I hope that that's what this will eventually lead to. Well, you'll see the nurse's notes that his family begged us on the phone to do everything we can. They did not want to switch him to a, you know, do not resuscitate order. And that's why this was such a big deal when the doctor essentially told us that we're not going to resuscitate and that then there was no order. Under the the policy, I guess the pandemic policy for this hospital, you could get a two physician consent that, you know, any life-saving measures would be futile, but they didn't even do that because there would, there was no two doctors that would agree to, to write that. So So ultimately one physician consent where two should have been required. Right. There, there is a um, two physician consent that would have stood up you know, had they wanted to do, you know, like a do not resuscitate on him. But there was no two doctors that would do this. But nobody wanted to put their name on anything. Wow. Now, so then we, we can't, that was the misclassification. Those are the two things that really struck out for me, saying someone is COVID positive and they're negative. And then the classifying people as do not resuscitate when clearly that goes against everything clearly that the nurses were trained to believe in what the doctors should have and I've learned something new and that is that they broke their own rules to enforce that do not resuscitate specifically in the face of pleas from the parents of the family to resuscitate so then we come to mistreatment and we can I think we'll learn a great deal more about whether this was a disease that should have been ventilated which I strongly believe it shouldn't rather than for example hyperbaric oxygen treatment or more immediately accessible hydroxychloroquine and you dwelt on for some time on Cuomo's kind of enforcement <laughs> that that should not be allowed this is just a sort of speculation there and that the the hydroxychloroquine trial that was subsequently undermined in a dramatic turn of events and the Lancet had an inquiry and the paper was withdrawn, there was a deliberate attempt to undermine the clinical benefit of hydroxychloroquine. Now, as a person who is doing that study, you don't take the risk of publishing that kind of paper, which you know to be false from the outset, and risk discovery, which ultimately happened, unless there's a very, very good reason. And clearly the reason in this case is not the benefit of patients. And have you any thoughts on why people would deliberately corrupt 
a study to show that hydroxychloroquine is not good, in fact, dangerous, when in fact it would be a very easily accessible, relatively safe, long-tested and effective treatment in all the other studies that have been performed of hydroxychloroquine in this condition. The only thing I can think of is that they wanted these people to die. And I know that is a really heavy statement, but to ban a drug that, you know, was being, was successful, it was successful in my hospital and that was all confirmed. We went all the way up to the corporate and the medical doctor of my hospital facility, they, um, you know, stated that, yeah, this is, this is what we did and it was successful. So for me to go to another state and find out that this treatment is banned, it, it just blows my mind because why, why would you, you know, remove the possibility of a treatment that can help people? And in my recording, you know, I, I asked the doctor, one of the doctors there, like, why can't we be trying, you know, why can't we try these alternative treatments that are successful in other states and they're successful around the world? This has been including the IV vitamin C that Dr. Chang in Asia was, you know, it passed three trials. Like, if, if, if this, if what, if what they were doing wasn't working and he admitted that no patient has been successfully, you know, extubated or has left the hospital without a vent, then why not give it your best try with any alternative treatment? So the only thing I can think of is that they wanted these patients dead. They wanted the numbers high. And that is, it, it's like modern day genocide. To continue listening to this podcast, please go to patreon.com, Andy Wakefield Podcast, and become a subscriber. For $5 a month, you will have access to all of our podcast content and other special events.